Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On today's show, we welcome the founder and CEO of Flash Food, Josh Dominguez, to discuss how to scale a startup in a non-sexy industry. Josh shares how he got his first job working in the private wealth division, helping athletes manage their wealth after suffering his own career-ending hockey injury, and how that role helped him understand his own desire to build something for himself. Next, Josh explains how he originally got the idea for Flash Food after listening to his family member complain about the amount of food wasted by her catering company daily and how he took it upon himself to learn more about the food waste problem facing our society. Finally, we discussed with Josh how he had to overcome challenges such as pushback from potential investors and naysayers and how he eventually built a successful company that is now working with over 1,600 grocery stores across North America and how he was able to raise over $20 million from top-tier investors while saving the world. But before we jump into this week's interview with Josh Dominguez, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Awesome. Well, welcome back to the tank, John. We missed you for a few weeks after a little bit of a break, but there is uh, a lot of shit hitting the fan, to say the least. I don't know really where to start here, but I think the two biggest stories that have come out in the last couple of days have got to be the fallout of Renault Run and then the obviously recapping if it even gets done on Clearco. Which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> Why don't you surprise me? <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Let's start with Renarun. It's a little bit older than the ClearCo news that just recently broke. But in Renarun's situation, you know, the company filed for creditor protection. Not really a shock there. I think the leading up to what happened, though, that none of us would really know because we weren't in the boardroom, obviously, is the more story to cover here of what went wrong and how did so many different options fall off the table with nobody coming to a compromise to end in a, you know, a bankruptcy filing like this, in your opinion? Yeah. And, and man, and of course, I, I'm not behind the scenes either. So my, my comments are only based on what I've read as well. Uh, it is a company that, you know, that we, we looked at, uh, at Mavericks as well, as well. And I like uh, Eamon and, and, and the folks there. Let me just first start off where I'm going to first defend the investing group, and then I'm going to shit on them. I'm going to defend them that there is no problem uh, unless the founder and the management team deliver what they said they were going to deliver. So at the end of the day, that's where the problem starts. Now, the question is, what kind of investing group do you have? And when shit happens, what do they do? They run, point the fingers and blame everyone, or do they try to help? And this is where it gets a little bit murky. Now, the valuation on the previous financing was ridiculous. Shame on the investors. We saw it, not even remotely close to looking at it. And they were trying to grow into their valuation. The first key question to ask is, would anybody finance the business? And when I say anyone, it was clearly no one externally. So you have to say, is there anyone internally? If the answer is no, you're done. And frankly, that that, that is life and it's a shame. But in this case, there was somebody. And as we understand it, it was Sozo, uh, Sozo Ventures. The moment that happens, the company is still alive but people are going to get their pound of flesh. And this is the cram down scenario. And this is where I'm going to start shitting on the VCs because it seems like there were competing bids. And 
now there's a competing bid. And if you're going to compete against that, you better deliver. And it sounds like there was a competing bid. And then that competing bid fell apart. And then the original bid being so-so was saying, wait a minute. Well, now you guys said you don't want our deal, but you want to do your deal. And now you don't do your deal. And now you're not allowing our deal to happen. The company falls apart. So what this looked like on the surface is exactly what I was warning to the market. There's a misalignment between investors and the entrepreneur at the end of the day. As an investor, who are you really beholden to? I mean, do you really care about the company or you just care about yourself? And here is the worst part. In a cram down, yeah, you get creamed on the valuation, but you don't lose your shares. If right or run were to kill it in the future, yeah, you can get maybe some or a portion. But one thing's for certain. Once it goes to zero, your proceeds are zero. And this is what happened. So same on the situation, and and it looks like it's preventable, but the only caveat I will say is we don't know all of the details, but the way it was written, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, it's totally true, John. I think like first you defend the investors to say like some of them stepped up to the plate uh, to try to do a rescue financing, but then when push came to shove, maybe the founding team was leveraging those initial term sheets to go do a better deal. They got that better deal, thought they had it in the bank, and then obviously those people walked away, went back to the original people they were kind of levering off of and said, hey, are you still interested? And says like, you can't just use me and abuse me and then ask me to come and help you out at the last minute. So there's a lot of those sort of like, backdoor negotiations that you and I have obviously seen, but our audience has probably not seen. I think the question I would like to hear your thoughts are on is like, who broke the glass here? You know, do you think it was the founders just saying, fuck it, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And everyone's going to get wiped out, including me. But like, at least I don't have to deal with you shitheads anymore. Or do you think that all the investors were just fighting tooth and nail to the last minute and they couldn't get it uh, across the finish line with all the lawyers involved? I don't know definitively, but you know what it looks like to me is they needed to cut the burn dramatically. This is where I say to the entrepreneur, look, step number one is manage your balance sheet and watch your burn. And it sounds like may have waited too long. As they were letting people go, I suspect people started doing the calculations for severance, perhaps unremitted source deductions. And it looks like board of directors, the trigger was a couple of them decided to resign. And that's usually on legal advice of get off the board, even though your liability is fixed as of that date. So it's it's, it's really kind of a moot point. But it seems like the resignation of two board members really sunk it. And now if you're the entrepreneur, no one's giving you a dollar. No one's coming in. So-so, it seemed like they just backed out. And now it's just the inevitable, we're going to go into CCAA. And then we'll see, are some of the ashes actually sold? But I'm not exactly even sure what IP is there left in a marketplace. Yeah, what I was saying, you know, uh, last time was like, you know, when you have a real world business that operates like with warehouses and trucks and infrastructure, it's very hard. Your margins are so razor thin to begin with. No matter how much capital you raise, you don't have the flexibility to navigate choppy waters like this. But the other thing too, John, that you talked about with you know what Mark Schuster with the venture debt, 
Nobody wants to do a rescue financing if the money's going to go in the front door and walk out the back door to pay off any of the venture debt holders. And that's exactly what we think is happening here also on the Clearco situation. So let's move on to that because that is still unfolding in real time. I always get shocked when I see these like details come out in Sean Sokoff's article, but <laughs> he gets them all the time. <laughs> he gets them, right? So to give it to our audience, essentially what's uh, happening and a lot of people have been anticipating this is that there's going to be a recu- rescue financing of around 20 to 25 million, apparently led by one of their insiders, Inovia, at a $200 million-ish valuation for whatever that's worth. However, there are a lot of things that have to happen for this actually to happen. So why don't you explain to our audience how a rescue recap financing actually works when there's so many moving parts between debt, equity, preferred stack here to have this to close? This one here is a little bit more baffling to me, to be honest, and I'll tell you why. In a lending business, your inventory is really the financing capital that you get, right? And you need to make a spread on their financing capital. Simple as that. And, you know, theoretically, you want at least a net 200 basis point spread. I was surprised to see that there is no inventory of lending capital that is on the come. So what exactly are you financing here? This is a financing, in essence, of a business plan with a brand with some pre-existing employees. And you saw what the cram down, If again, if the numbers are right, it's a 95-ish plus percent cram down. But I've written a post about this, uh, Matt, and people can look at the, or our team did, when you look at structure, and this has a couple of elements of structure, it seems like what they did, the previous financing included both Anovia and the two co-founders. They're taking that round and extending that round and including another 20 or $25 million. And the nominal pre-money value is $180 million. However, there is 100% ward coverage. So it's like your two-for-one pizza. So it is a pre-money of 90. There is also a 2x liquidity feature on it. So now you're down below $90 million. So from $2.5 billion post or thereabouts, I can't remember, to $90 million, you're having about a 98% cram down with no capital. So it just feels like this one here has a whole lot of conditions. And maybe it's a Hail Mary to keep the business alive. But we do know that it was flogged by an investment banker with no takers and so this might be the last chance of saving the business before this potentially goes into a CCAA. Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of say what happens at the end of all this, if this company is sold, you know, for double the amount of equity being put in here, the 20 million or 25 million plus the convertible notes that, you know, the founders had put in, there's a 2x liquidation. So the first 90 million, if they do sell for that, goes to these investors and the existing investors plus commas and all are zeroed. So this thing has to sell for more than like a hundred million. But the the last part is they also have a, a a a line of credit with Silicon Valley Bank, which is now obviously in limbo with First Citizens Bank. 
which may or may not buy the Canadian uh, book of business. It will not actually. So now you have to get sign off on that credit line before even the equity investors get. So there's a huge amount of like moving parts to even get to this potential financing. But yeah, and time is running out and your employees are leaving. This does not bode well. And again, at the end of the day, what is the enduring value uh, for a business like this? And it's really, really tough. So it's, it's, it's awful to see, but this is, this is, uh, again, the message here is structure. It was burning massive amounts of money for a long time. And it, and, you know, at the end of the day, you, you, you could criticize the venture capitalist, but the reality is the business did not execute in the manner in which it was intended to do so. And this is now the result of that. Yeah. And I think it's something that you and I talk about a lot, you know, where we invest at the pre-seed stage and seed stage and where you invest at the sort of pre-private equity growth stage. We always consider the off-ramps in all of our businesses. Where can these businesses get offloaded to in a good scenario and a medium scenario? But when you have a business that's marked at such a high price with so much injected capital, with very little margins and very little flexibility in the business model if interest rates rise, you have zero off-ramps into this business. And the only off-ramp is this, a recap of the business uh, where everyone essentially gets wiped and who knows if they can even get back to building. But, you know, we'll see. We, we were talking about this. So and you and I have talked this many times. And as a VC or investor, it's easy for us to say this, but this is two examples now of high valuations can be a noose around your neck if you don't execute perfectly. And if you do, awesome. It happens rarely. And when you don't, it can be devastating. We're going to see so many of them. They they just happen to be two high profile examples, but there is a whole slew more coming down the pipe. Yeah. So a data point that I heard recently in a conversation with the CEO that I had been sharing is that a venture fund that had been around for, you know, almost 20 years, seen over 4,000 companies in their portfolio of the 4,000 investments they made, that had not achieved double-digit growth year-over-year minimum that were VC-backed first time, only 10% of them made it back onto the venture path. Wow. So if you don't hit those growth targets and you slip up, which a lot of people in like 2020 were being rescued for not even hitting those growth targets because capital is cheap, but now it's obviously much harder to get. If you miss those, like, you know, those growth targets, it's really hard to get funding again. And so what you and I talk about is, is exactly that. You know, if you take that high valuation, it's not that you achieved anything. It's that you just made the stakes much higher for you to actually see some sort of liquidity event that's profitable for everyone involved. But we'll wait to see how this uh, ClearCo example plays out. Uh, I didn't get a chance to speak with you uh, when the federal budget came out. There's obviously been a lot of talk about it. It sounded like a huge flop for everyone in the venture capital and the tech community for, for everyone, I think, from what I've been reading and what our opinion has been. What are your thoughts here? I know there's some positives that you can probably pick on, but share overall thoughts here. Yeah, you know, this was not an innovation budget. There were previous innovation budgets. I don't, we weren't really expecting one, but we were a little disappointed that at least some of the elements that we were expecting weren't in there. This was largely an infrastructure budget and a green, uh, you know, environmental one, which, which we do like. But the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States played a huge role in this budget. And Canada is playing catch up. And what 
this budget is starting to reflect is and and you know if you've been following geopolitics for the last 10 years it was coming it it was the united states and the interlinking canada with us supply chain it uh, was shining through on this budget at at various points and the reality is while the rest of the world is going to go through hell one of the places that will be the least amount of hell, it seemingly might be the Americas. And this budget was starting to reflect that reality. And that's what I saw in this budget. I did find it funny that there's putting uh, institutional guidelines around disclosure of crypto assets for federally regulated financial institutions and pension funds in the wake of the FTX disaster. Well, that was a joke. Like, you know, I I was the first investor of any pension fund investing in the blockchain space. And that was in 2016. It was actually Jim Orlando who had done it. Now, we put in small, modest amounts, but we were really focused in on that. Now, what it also fails to disclose is that, again, I think I've told you, I am a passionate blockchain investor. I am not a crypto uh, investor. And where the pension fund started mixing the two is that the folks who are in the commodities side of investing started investing in the currency as they would in any other currency speculation without understanding the underlying technology. And it got them into trouble. But to get the regulators to do that, it was just a, you know, a, Showing, you know, beating your chest move of, yeah, we didn't catch any of this stuff, nor should they have. But I think it was a show of, you know, we're we're looking at it just like they did post the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco, where now the Canadian government uh, OFSTE will look at daily balances of uh, assets and liabilities. Which I, I know you've been an avid voice about obviously getting more transparency too. Yes, that was the problem. That was the change in the United States. So they're just very carefully making sure that they wouldn't miss anything. But yes, it's a, it's playing a little bit of catch up. For sure. Everyone's playing catch up and saying, fool me once, not fool me twice. We'll get it the second time, hopefully. Yeah, I don't blame them. I don't blame them to do it. I don't blame them. I think they have to do it that way. But speaking of regulatory oversight, we are seeing some First Nations starting to measure and restrict the use of ChatGPT. Uh, we obviously see Italy's privacy regulator banning OpenAI's chatbot. We're seeing more and more countries thinking about this. And even our country in Canada has put together a task force to start analyzing and thinking about restrictions. What do you say? Well, I read the uh, the letter led by uh, Elon Musk and folks. So here, here is my view. First of all, I do agree with the contents of the letter from the perspective of just because you can build it doesn't mean that you should. And the Pandora's box is open from an AI perspective, in particular from a generative AI perspective. And the problem is 95% of the time with these technologies, people use it for good. And then there is these jackass bad actors who will take some of these technologies and use it for bad. And I think that the 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 rough sandboxes of what you should and should not do. I don't I don't think it's a bad idea. The challenge will be is that you don't want to stifle innovation either. 
But even when, you know what started to bother me? When some of the deepest researchers in this space started to say, you know what? We need regulation. And when I started reading that, I was like, whoa, you don't understand where this is going either. So I think it's a it's a good idea. There is what is the rush for this? And the funniest part about this whole thing is we're seeing that on one end, and then you're seeing this FOMO-induced frenzy of VCs trying to finance the next one. It's fascinating to watch this. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll take a, a counter argument to why this uh, can't be regulated. Obviously, researchers want it to be regulated because OpenAI is light years ahead of where they want to be, probably with their own solutions. But the only reason you can't regulate this is because what they have been building and what all tech companies have been building has already been built in the back end. It, the AI has been running and building large language models in the back end for years now. The only difference is there's now a front-facing customer interface where people and their children can test it and use it and apply it to day-to-day life. And when a mother or father sees their kids using it to do their homework, they freak out. And there's all of that concern around whether or not this is going to change our, our kids' minds, change the way that homework is being done, and all those things. But you cannot stop the technology that has already been running in the background with machine learning, NLP, and AI on large language models to help businesses become more efficient because that is going to stifle productivity and innovation in our country and we're going to lose to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, Matt, though, what the concern is, and I, I kind of I get this part, there's a concern that on the large language models, whether it can be manipulated to to produce results that could shape bad v- views that are hateful and all those sorts of things. Bad recommendations of medical procedures or whatever, anything. I get it. Or sentiment in a way that if it gets hijacked by nation states uh, in there, and, and I think the point is, the the you know people didn't believe it was possible with algorithms of Facebook or Twitter and it's turning out to be holy crap it was hijacked from a sentiment perspective without changing the underlying engine so again I'm not technically astute enough to understand what are the avenues of manipulation but I think when lots of people who are a whole lot smarter than than I am you know starting off with Elon Musk saying holy cow let's be really careful you know asking for a six-month moratorium just so that we understand what are the rough boundaries on there i don't think is 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 an unfair ask if you're saying cap it and let's not deal with it again then then i'd say come on folks pandora's box is open number one and number two 95 percent of the stuff that's coming out of this stuff is going to be spectacular and anyway, so I don't know what the answer is. You know what I was surprised with? Of all countries, Italy came out. I was like, <laughs> what the heck was that all about? So I got to I gotta go to my Italian brethren and figure out <laughs> what the hell were they doing. But what it's they very un-Italian like. <laughs> if it's going to start making handmade Italian suits, I mean, I'll take a, I'll take a whirl on that, see how it looks. <laughs> right. uh, before I let you go, John, we haven't really talked about this much. It's been happening for quite some time now. But as capital pools from institutional LPs dries up, uh, in the U.S. market, and it's already been pretty small to start with in Canada, and more VC funds and private equity funds and hedge funds go overseas to the Middle East to get capital to continue to invest. 
we start to see this like backlash from the media and saying, you know, Andreessen Horowitz is all in on Saudi Arabia and all these big funds are going over there. What are your thoughts here? Because I know you raised a lot of capital locally for your first fund, but you have said that you plan to go to the US and beyond to raise capital in the future, which obviously we would like to do as well. So why are people knocking uh, people trying to raise capital from around the world? Well, just like any financial organization, you need to know your know your client. And I think that includes, you know, the capital in which you're using to source your business. And I think having an excuse of, well, capital is capital and it doesn't really matter. I don't buy into that. And 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 I'll I'll give you a very live example. We did have a, a few requests coming from China and and it came from angels and I did ask the angels I am happy to take it but I need to do my work to ensure that it's not coming from uh, the the Chinese state long story short we just slowly uh, passed on it but there are those concerns and we're seeing how uh, certain nation states, are, are using their capital in a manner that's that's perhaps not conducive to our values. Now, in the case of Saudi, you know, in, in Saudi, I have a number of friends in Saudi, as do I in Israel, uh, and as do I in Iran, but it's not a personal thing. But I look back and I say, okay, where is the capital coming from? Now, the problem with some of the VCs is that when the uh, Khashoggi murder had occurred, there were a number of VCs who publicly stated it is disgraceful, disgraceful, and will never ever take money from them again. So, remember, what I was telling you during the SVB debacle. Well, you know what? If you really believe that, then do it. And I think what the article was trying to do was saying, hey, I thought some of you guys said you wouldn't. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily. I mean, there are some folks that believe that the oil in Saudi is unethical and they'll have a view on that. Certainly in Iran, the you know the sanctions do make that a little bit more clear. I'd be curious to see that if any capital pools were sourced from Iran or North Korea, would any of the investors take it? I will tell you definitively, I need to know. And I need to know right right to exactly where the source is. And then we will make a decision because it's not worth the reputation risk. And I also want to feel good at night. So that's us. And I'm not saying I'm imposing my values on others because I am not. But I will say I will be consistent. And if somebody in a nation state that I am uncomfortable with offers me a monstrous check, I do know that there's strings attached to it and I will politely decline that. Yeah, I think what I was saying is if the if the money passes KYC and AML compliance, if the money is already stateside and it's already gone through regular, you know, checks and balances to be on, you know, US balance sheets, but it has an affiliation with some Middle East, you know, organization, but the money's already been here. I mean, I just don't understand why why people just have to label it because they have an affiliation with someone, but they're collecting the money. I mean, if you're going directly in to the banks in Saudi Arabia and saying, give me the money, and I have no idea where it's coming from, thanks very much. That's a whole other story that I don't think any of us would want to get involved in. But I think if you pass the same checks and balances, 
you shouldn't be just getting labeled as somebody who's taking like blood money because it's associated there, but it's all gone through the same clean. It's way more complex than just simply seeing the source of, of, of the country. There are some great organizations that I know personally, I spent a lot of time in Saudi, you know, the question would be, are you going to take it from the, 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 the Saudi investment, the, 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 the PIF, the, the investment fund? Some folks will, will have a view. I can tell you, though, that some of my colleagues who are Israeli will choose not to. And, and by the way, I, I get it and I understand it. And, but they're very, very consistent and they have a reason why. And uh, I appreciate. So I think the real point is on VCs, sometimes there's money that maybe you don't accept. Oh, by the way, sorry, I should say one thing. I did have one source that I do recall in Canada that wanted to put money into our funding. It was a family office. And we diligence every family office with somebody who I didn't know. And this individual was involved with some pretty shady activity and we politely declined. So it's not just a nation state issue. It goes back to, are you willing to risk reputation damage for, for, for money? And, and the answer for us is no, it's not worth it. No, it's not worth it. And you're absolutely right. Know your client and do your research just like they're doing on you because you're in bed with these people for 10 years and the reputational damage could last a lot longer. You know, before I wrap things up, John, I want to thank you personally for all the advice you've been giving me over the last little while. For our audience who doesn't know this, our fund recently returned a good portion of our first fund capital to LPs. And that feels really good to do in this market. And John was great to coach me through the process. Uh, And now we're halfway uh, return of capital on our first fund, which puts us in the top 5% of uh, funds in our vintage. So really excited about that. And thank you for the uh, advice, John. No problem. And Matt, just for your viewers, when you return capital to your LPs, tell us what was the reaction? Good work. Keep it up. <laughs> Keep it coming. <laughs> and they and all you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna take that money, they're not gonna spend it, and they're gonna redirect it right back into your next fund. That's the way to do it. So thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate you joining us again. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Now let's jump in the tank for this week's episode with Josh Dominguez from Flash Food. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. Josh, your story of how you got started in the tech industry actually begins well before you ever started working in tech. You know, we met back in 2018, I believe. So I remember your journey, but it would be great if you can give our audience a brief background on how you got started as an athlete and eventually how you made your way into the professional world to kick things off. So I was a pretty good hockey player growing up. I played in the OHL and the Quebec League. And when I was 17, it was my NHL draft year and I broke my leg in a hockey fight. So I was like leaning back, threw a punch, missed. The other guy threw a punch and missed. And my back leg just snapped both of my shin bones. And I had a plate and 12 screws put into my ankle. And I remember like laying in the hospital bed, like about to go on surgery. I was in tears. And I was like, well, I should probably start paying attention in school because I wasn't a great skater before this and I'm not going to be a better skater after it. So after that, I still played major junior. I had a a scholarship and went to school in Halifax at St. Mary's and then left that and went directly into finance. I worked on Bay Street as an investment advisor where I was cold calling on behalf of a boss that I work for. And so we're calling business owners and trying to convince them to meet with us and give our boss their life savings. And we literally had like a boiler room, like glass doors, 
seven or eight different people sitting beside each other, making 150, 200 dials a day to random people. And you had a whiteboard where like, if you book a meeting, you put like a, a line on the whiteboard. So I did that for a year and a half and then went to a management consulting company and did that for about a year and a half. And then my last job before starting Flash Food, my old hockey agent was a pretty prominent NHL agent. And he brought me in to run a family office for some of the NHL hockey players. So we were managing money on behalf of like, 19-year-olds that had a few million dollars to 30-year-olds that had tens of millions of dollars. And I was basically just like flying all over the place, getting people to sign documents or like helping with insurance policies or whatever it may be. Looking at VC funds actually as a source of investment. So ran the gamut. And then from there, I'm sure we'll get into it, but like quit all of that to start Flash Food, which is like a very unique story, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely get into it. But, you know, I forgot about that breaking the leg part of the, the conversation you told us. I mean, fuck, I teared up a little bit just thinking about you in bed, figuring out what's next. But it's not uncommon for a lot of players, unfortunately, to have that kind of come to Jesus moment. And a lot of them don't know what to do. And I worked on Bay Street, as you know, for, you know, over, you know, 15 years. And I remember those early days. And, you know, they call it the bullpen for a reason. So you were an investment advisor at BMO, I remember, trying to figure out exactly what you were doing. And obviously, Obviously, with some hard work and some good grit, you were able to figure out your path, you know, onto the management consulting and eventually the private wealth world. So I kind of pictured you as like the rock for hockey players, uh, you know, rolling around trying to get professional athletes to help manage their personal finances, but also their personal affairs. You know, we have some actual NHL players in, in our fund as LPs. And so, you know, talking with them, they are becoming more aware and sophisticated of of the uh, investment world, which is great. But I'm assuming when you started, that experience was not the case. So what did you gain from those roles working with some of these professional athletes and trying to help educate them along with yourself about sort of all the different choices they had available? It was fascinating because some of them, like the wealthiest person that I work with, that I worked with at the time, did not care at all about like how much money they had. The family, they just him and his wife, like had a couple of young kids and they were just like, we had the meeting. They're like, we're like, we have more money than we ever thought we would have already. And this person still had so much contractually that was coming to them in the future. So it was fascinating to like see that dynamic and then like just other people that were younger in their career that were making a lot in terms of like a normal person, but not a lot in terms of like an NHL context and like we're spending a bunch of money. So I think seeing uh, people at different backgrounds, seeing the differences on how people think about the asset of money and just like wealth in general and what they're going to do with money, I think is fascinating. I've always been fascinated in that. The one part of my experience that specifically helped the most for flash food was when I was in management consulting, we did a project on a demolition company that I was put on and I was so excited. I'm like TNT, they're going to blow up buildings. It's going to be so cool. That is not how they take down buildings. They get excavators and they scrape them down and they resell all of the material. So there was one project before my time, one job that this company did that everybody else was bidding 12 or $13 million to take down a building. And the company that I worked on behalf of bid $3 million and got the job because the supplier or whatever, the building only had to pay them $3 million. By the time they resold all of the copper that was in the walls in that building, they netted out over $20 million. And that got me thinking there's value in waste. There's value in things that people don't want. So the dichotomy of like seeing how money flows from different people and like seeing operationally like how businesses are built and opportunity, it was just like a fascinating background 
and foray into building a business. Yeah. Well, that's a really funny story because both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side kind of lived in the waste world. My mom's side was in the scrap metal business. So I learned about obviously the value in waste and copper there. And my father, I'm not sure if you remember, he also owned a produce store. And so, you know, when you launched Flash Food, I believe, you know, you launched the company after you heard about how much waste your sister threw out from a catering event which resonated obviously a lot with you. And it resonated a lot with me because I remember my father coming home from work every day, asking his store workers at the end of every day, what was the waste number? How much did we throw out? And it was the one number that him and his staff focused on at the end of every day. And obviously it was a big question on his mind, as well as your mind that stuck with you when you heard that. So for our audience, can you share how you got started solving the problem of food waste? Yeah. So my sister, like you said, was a chef. She called me after a catering event. She's like, I just threw out $4,000 worth of food. I started laughing like, you idiot. Why would you do that? She's like, no, this feeling sucks. Like, I feel horrible. I'm walking home past all these homeless people. And my boss was over my shoulder, like basically making me shovel food into the garbage. So I was like, okay, that sounds awful. I calmed her down. And for the next few days, started reading about food waste. And what I learned is when food gets thrown out, it usually ends up in a landfill, gets covered by other garbage. When it rots, doesn't have oxygen. That produces methane gas. So the stat is if international food waste were a country, it'd be the third leading cause of greenhouse gas emission behind the US and China, which just like floored me because I didn't realize the environmental impact. And at the time, I thought, okay, where the hell is all this food waste happening? Where in the value stream? There's probably so many places. And one of the places that I really dug into was grocery stores. And I remember going to the Metro in Liberty Village, arguably like the most densely populated grocery store in the country. And they were throwing out boneless, skinless chicken breast three days before the sell-by date. Like there was none of them on the shelf. And I asked the meat department manager at the time, I was like, what do you guys do with this stuff? Like, why is there nothing less than three days? He's like, Honestly, we just toss it. I'm like, why? He's like, because people don't want it. They reach to the back for whatever has the longer shelf life. And I was like, why don't you mark it all down? He's like, well, we can't just like mark down everything on our shelves because then people will just take all the markdown stuff. And that's where I was like, this is a really, really difficult problem to solve. And, and then digging deeper into that, the numbers are just massive. Like the average grocery chain throws out between 2 and 3% of top-line sales. That's an industry standard. Probably a, in the fresh category, it's higher, like 7 to 10%. But Kroger, the biggest grocer in America, is doing $120 or $140 billion of sales per year. So to think about like the volume of food that's getting tossed is just massive. And the idea that I had was, if there's a way for the store to mark the price of the food down, send me a notification. I could see the deal through my phone, pay through my phone, pick it up in the store the same day. People would shop like that all the time. And that's what we built. We took the discount food rack, made it look cool, put it on your cell phone. Right. I mean, you started with the problem, which is great, but you also realized how big of a fucking problem this was, not only just at the grocery store level, but also as an individual, right? The stat is that one in four bags of groceries you walk out of the store with go into the in the trash. So it's not just happening at the store. It's also happening post-purchase at home. So you decided, I'm going to try and figure it out at the grocery store level. And I remember you said you started at one store in London, Ontario, which was Farm Boy. And you built a mobile app for users to find these deals. You know, how did you keep the business alive in those early years before started getting out any traction? I think you had a solution that worked. Before that, most of the waste happens at the home and, and then also at the farm. And thinking about like how to monetize those, like good luck. It's just so hard. Like people either have better buying habits or they don't. Like even if you educate them, it just kind of is what it is. And at the farm, you still have logistical challenges. 
But the thinking on flash food is if you can drive a shopper in the store because they bought something for 50% off and then they spend more money while they're in the store and you can drive in net new shoppers, that's going to make the retailer more money. And if you can prove that out, then you just have distribution across their whole network. And that was the thesis. And we were willing to die on that. Like we could have done the whole like restaurant thing, but like, I don't know. I started a food waste app and I love pizza and I would rather pay a full slice for like a fresh, I'd rather pay $4 for a fresh slice of pizza than a dollar for a day old slice of pizza. And I think that's the same with like bagels and donuts. And I just don't really know if the value prop is there to the consumer versus grocery shopping. So back to your question, how do we stay alive? Man, I have no idea. We proved concept in one of these stores and then we rebuilt the app and they gave us three stores and it kept working. And then we got to Longo's in Toronto. We proved concept with them, hit a lot of the same measure, same numbers. We were selling 75 to 80% of all the food made available through us. We're driving in new shoppers. They're spending more while they're in store. And for a tech company, you have to know your cost of acquisition for a user, for your grocery, for a grocery chain. They don't really know what it costs to get a new shopper in. And Canada is probably the worst country that I could have started this company in because it's oligopolistic. There's like three families that control the flow of food. You really have like Loblaws, Metro, and Sobeys to try to get in with at real scale. And what happened was we raised 450K friends and family the first round. And the first check in the business was from a group that owns high-end restaurants in Toronto. And I didn't take any money from friends and family until they wrote the first check. And then I was able to go to friends and family and say, see, like, you're not the dumbest person. Like somebody really smart in this space wrote a check. Can you give us some money? So that got us to 450K. And then uh, we raised 750K in 2018. And that was on the back of like seeing some of the metrics from the first store. So the first store happened. We had metrics. We raised 450K. Then we had a few other stores. We were able to raise 750K, which like kept us alive. But when we raised that 750K round, when that closed, we had $753,000 in the bank. Like it was like, we, that was it. Like when people talk about like runway, it was like there wasn't runway. Like it was two or three days. Oh, man. Yeah. The big thing that happened was I got connected to an executive, a former executive at Loblaws, who, who I had breakfast with. And he's like, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who runs the discount division at Loblaws. I met with her and she's just like, told her the exact same pitch as everybody else. She's like, all right, we'll give you a chance in a few stores in London, in London, Ontario. We hit the same metrics that we had with other grocers and Loblaws was like, check, we're rolling this out across. At that time, it went from four stores to 400 in a matter of like four months, five months. So we just stayed on the thesis and we're willing to die. Like we weren't going to divert and like we did a food box thing that sucked. Like the whole like deliver weird shape uh, veggies to people that just my CTO's wife is a vegetarian and the box was like $20 for a massive box of produce. And she wasn't even a subscriber of the box. And I remember saying to him, Chris, like if Marina's not doing this, like we need to shut this down. It doesn't matter what the GMV is in the sales. Like this sucks. And he's like, yeah, you're right. So a couple of fortunate things happened and we proved concept to the right stakeholder. And then we got distribution. Yeah. You know, it's so amazing that we totally underestimated when we passed on the opportunity was how perfect of a solution you were building for a place that already had foot traffic and time to expiry that was good enough for a couple of days. To figure out the logistics on the farmer side is impossible. The peculiar produce side of it, 
also really hard to make money at. But figuring out how to wedge yourself in perfectly to a couple days expiration where there's huge foot traffic is exactly where this solution needed to be. And obviously, for anyone who hasn't uh, heard before, London, Ontario, which is about two hours you know, west of Toronto, is the prototype city of Canada. It's actually the prototype city for McDonald's, where they test a lot of their products. So that was also interesting that Loblaws pushed you into London to be a prototype for some of their pilots. Now, I do remember you were on Dragon's Den five years ago. Uh, I believe you were asking for 300K for 10%. You had a good pitch, uh, but good old Mike Weckerly didn't understand what the hell he was talking about, or you. And you ended up agreeing to a deal with Michelle Romanaugh and Arlene Dickinson for 300K for 25%, which I assume you did not take that deal, correct? Yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, there's a lot in there. On the start, from an investor perspective, we've, we've met with everybody in the country and like a lot of investors stateside as well. And like grocery tech is not really adopted often and building like a B2C, B2B, B2C company in the grocery space, like even just thematically, like don't do that. Like it's a horrible thing to bet on. So I think that uh, it's funny because like even now, like a lot of investors were at a much different phase, but investors that I talk with are like, listen, this is the bet that we're trying to, this is the piece of the business that we're trying to get around and we don't know if we can get around it. And I'm like, that's fair. Like you either can or you can't. This is the challenge that we run into. And I understand it from an investor perspective. And also like the other thing that a lot of folks, I think entrepreneurs don't get, and I'll come back to your question on uh, Dragon's Den, but VCs have to make a markup a return on their capital in a certain set of time. It's not like it can be never ending. Like if you get a 10X in 25 years, you probably don't have a second fund. So you have to bet on things that you can confidently either will die or will scale. On Dragon's Den, uh, came off the show, walked off set, and Arlene's analyst. So I guess for starters, like Michelle Romano is the best. I think very highly of her. I think she's an incredible operator. I think very few people in Canada take the kind of path that her and Andrew have taken with ClearBank and to try to build something as meaningful as they can. Timing is everything in different businesses, but I think those two are very, very impressive. And what they built is really cool. And so she's the one that got me on the show. She like led the deal and the offer. And a couple of funny things. When I, when I walked off set, Arlene's, I don't know, counsel associate handed me um, a contract and there was a break fee on it. And it had a six month timing so it's like, if you don't take our money within six months, like we have to do due diligence, then you got to pay a two and a half percent equity stake in a break fee. And I'm like, when do you expect me to sign this? He's like, ideally right now. I'm like, well, there's not a chance that I'm signing this without a lawyer. And like, I'm just not doing that. And also we're running out of money in like three weeks. That was a 750K round. So like we had like, I don't know, 20 grand in the bank. I'm like, this has to close now or it's not happening. And then, uh, so we didn't end up doing it. We still talked to our lean and our team for a while and it just like never came to fruition and that deal never happened. The funniest part of Dragon's Den, though, was like at the time on the set, you walk into this like set and there's a staircase and you walk in the room, you walk up like 15 stairs, you walk maybe 10 steps, then you walk down 15 stairs to like walk in the den. And I just remember thinking like that was so unnecessary. Like I did not need to walk down those stairs. Really just try to get your heart rate up first. Yeah, but it was wild. Like the filming was in April and the episode didn't air until October. And some of the feedback from like, Weckerly and others were just that you don't have enough data because at that time we only had some data from one store. 
And they're like, how big can this be? Will the grocer do it themselves? Do you have enough data? And I'm like, no, but this is the data that I have. And if this holds, this is going to be massive business. If it doesn't, then like, you're right. And it acted like it's helped. Like we're, we're now in over 1600 locations and all the metrics that I shared are like the same, like driving in net new shoppers, spending more money while they're in store, reducing food waste and the distribution angle has rung true. And we're very fortunate for that. Yeah, I mean your your growth and trajectory has been explosive. I think you know one of the most impressive things though is how you've been able to navigate the very competitive and sizable U.S. market. I mean, can you talk to us about how you were able to break through into the U.S. and how you were able to network with amazing uh, leaders like the CEO of Target? We got accepted into TechStars Retail, which is like a cohort that was in Target's head office in Minneapolis. So in 2018, I moved to Minneapolis for three months and I met with, uh, I went through the program and in that program, you have what's called mentor madness. So you, you meet with 10 different people a day for 20 minutes and it's speed dating. They poke holes in your business and then they get to decide if they want to be a lead mentor for you through the rest of the program. And in that program, we had executive day. So five of the top 10 people at Target were in the room and Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, not a lot of people know his story, but he grew up and I think his dad left or passed away when he was young. His mom was on welfare. She had to give him up to the grandparents for a while. And I remember like the night before executive day, I knew he was going to be one of the 10 people and I didn't sleep for a single second. I was literally awake the whole night. Cause I'm like, if I can't sell what we're doing to this guy, I have to shut the company down. Like, that's it. Like there's no executive who's going to know the feeling of like, not affording food than he will like there's just it's just not going to connect similarly to others so fortunately like through the program he ended up becoming a lead mentor of mine and up until covid i was flying back to minneapolis every quarter to meet with brian for 20 minutes in person and the reason why that was effective is i almost put him in my seat and asked what what he would do. And it gave him a chance to step into like a startup CEO role. And I would share openly, here's all the problems that I'm dealing with. And he would actually like talk as if like, this is what he would do. And then he'd pull me into some of the things that he was thinking through too, which was just fascinating to go through. And we still keep in contact, but I haven't been down there uh, to meet in person. We had a call not long ago, but separate to, to Brian, a lot of startups have a hard time going from Canada to the States. And I think about this very differently than I did a few years ago. And I want to caveat with, there was a, I think it was 18 or 24 month span of time through COVID that we physically couldn't get across the border. And so flash food as a business would have been a lot further along had that not have been the case or had I been living in the States. But it's actually like become a lot easier. The market is way bigger there are, there's way more competition in America for everything, meaning way more people are willing to listen to you. There's way more executives in the grocery and retail sectors that are willing to take chances. I remember we were selling into like trying to sell into all the Canadian ones. And at the time, Metro had, and the numbers might not be exact, but Metro was like based in Quebec and Ontario. They had 600 stores and something like $9 billion in sales Canadian. And there was a grocer called High V in the Midwest with 250 stores that had $11 billion in sales US. And I remember being like, why are we even thinking about other Canadian retailers? We have the biggest. Let's just go to the States and spend all of our time there. And I think separately too, the mission of the company is really important and we're really authentic about the mission. So reducing the environmental impact of food waste and feeding families affordably. And that's led to like different kinds of conversations with people. And when I do get in front of 
senior folks at these retail chains and they're predominantly all C-level, I share the dilemma really often. What I mean by that is like, here's the hard thing that we're trying to solve. How would you think about this? And that lets people like come on the same side of the table as you and try to solve it together. But ultimately, like we're making them a lot of money. So that's the other piece to this. Like if you make somebody's life easy, who's an executive and you make them a lot of found money, you should be able to sell that. And I, I think the other thing is just willingness. Like this week I was I was on an eight hour flight on Monday with a layover for an hour, and then I flew back on Tuesday. So I was out, had a dinner, came back, and that just like willingness and drive to be anywhere, meet people in person has had a tremendous impact now. Like there's companies in our space that have raised literally tens or hundreds of millions of dollars more than us. And they're messaging us asking how we're selling into all these grocery chains. Yeah. That started early though for you. I mean, obviously with you flying around, you know, trying to meet with uh, professional athletes and then you having to fly to accelerators uh, to meet for someone for 20 minutes, it's been part of your, you know, your hustle since the early days. So for now it's just, you know, second nature for you. But I also tell a lot of our founders, like there could be a customer in like Boise, Idaho, that's way bigger than like the largest customer you can find in Canada. You just have to be willing to go there and, and, and pitch them. That's literally where I was on Monday. I don't even think I said it, but that's, that's where I was yesterday. So I came, like, we didn't talk about this beforehand. That's no. literally exactly. Yeah. Well, now you know who the, now you know who the grocer was. Cause yeah, I was in Boise, Idaho. Like uh, that's where I was. That's hilarious. It's an eight-hour trek. I went to I flew. I left at six a.m. Went from Toronto to Chicago, Chicago to Boise. Got there at like noon their time. Met at three, and then they they actually messaged me after the meeting to be like, "We feel so bad. You came so far. Let's get dinner tonight." So we had dinner, which also helped. And then I left at six a.m. on a local time on yesterday, Tuesday. Went through to Denver, had an hour and a half layover, and then Denver to Toronto. That, but you know what? That's not dissimilar than a, a technical founder working to like three in the morning on a code and trying to figure it out. It's just kind of like the stuff that you have to do to be successful. And I think a lot of it does come from being an athlete. Like you have to eat a certain way. You have to train a certain way. You have to know your role and like do what is required of you to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I, I had that instilled in me when I was working on wall street covering global hedge funds, I would have to fly somewhere for a dinner and then come back on the red eye the next day. And even till this day, my wife, who's known me for, you know, a decade still thinks it's crazy that I have to fly somewhere for a two hour dinner and then come back the same day. But I think it's, it's really about showing that commitment and that effort that really sets you apart from a lot of the people who are just happy to jump on a zoom call, but we can spend a whole podcast talking about that. You know, I want to talk about the tangible impacts you've had from your platform. You mentioned, obviously, you're in 1,600 stores, you're saving a, a, a ton of money, but also making a ton of money. I feel like, you know, with the recession taking hold, inflation off the charts, layoffs everywhere, there's no more time that's better for you to see value than right now. So can you give us some examples of how people are leveraging flash food to like save money and also make money? Our platform to data saved We've diverted over 60 million pounds of food that would have ended up in landfills, and we've saved shoppers over like 150 million US, I think is the number, on savings because the average discount's 50% off. Some of our top shoppers are saving tens of thousands of dollars a year. The average is like just under a thousand a year. And there's no more affordable way to buy your groceries in North America than through flash food. It's just the value prop in a recessionary macro environment is really strong. It's really strong in a non-recessionary environment. And one of the fascinating things about building the business is that 
venture capitalists that you meet with at the beginning are so far removed from the problem that we were trying to solve. Like I just remember one of them and it's, and it's not by fault of their own. It's just by way of like, usually they come from banking or they've started their own funds. So they're independently wealthy, whatever it is. Oh, Cause we all have private chefs. That's why. Exactly. Yeah. Or you're all like doing like, like whatever the meal deliveries are. Like you just haven't, even if you have a story like Brian Cornell's where he's the CEO of Target and he grew up how he grew up, it's probably been like 45 years since he actually had that lived experience. So I think the other fascinating thing about the business is like flash food is built. So most technology companies that are consumer facing consumer mobile apps that were built in the last 15 years, came out of San Francisco, and they were built for folks to have convenience, like to pay money to save their time. Whereas flash food is the complete opposite of that. We're for people that are willing to save money and go out of their way to do a thing. And there's actually way more people that fall in that bucket. So when you see what's happening in the macro market now, it's a little bit weird to be in our shoes because we're as a business, we're benefiting. But it's just so important on the savings for shoppers. And like I could spend hours talking about some of the stories we have a feel-good slack channel where like all of the customer support tickets that are like or reviews come in and we'll just like reshare some of the stories the best one that i ever heard that i tell frequently was a young mother who had three kids and through covid her husband got laid off and she's like without flash food we wouldn't be able to feed our kids this kind of food and then separately she's like with the money that we saved our kids didn't expect anything for Christmas. And with the money that we saved, we were able to get a whole bunch of candy as stocking stuffers. And when they came down the stairs that morning and they saw their stockings full of candy, like their faces just absolutely lit up. And that's one where like you can't get paid to feel the way that you feel when that goes through our Slack channel and we refer back to it. You think uh, Instacart or DoorDash or an Uber Eats is doing that for their customers? Absolutely not. Uh, it's really incredible the impact you've had. But also there's people who you wouldn't think as your demographic that are probably using the app as well. Like I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like buying a bunch of meat that's ready to expire, not because they can't afford to buy fresh. It's just like, well, I just it's such a good deal and I can freeze it and then have a huge feast with my family over Thanksgiving. We had a we had a staff member who just posted a turkey that they bought, a full like marinated turkey that was marked down from like fifty one dollars to twenty five and it was frozen already. So like yeah, like you're gonna save yourself like right now it's twenty five, but closer to Thanksgiving or Christmas, that turkey's probably sixty or seventy five dollars. The savings are real, like the money like that people are saving, it's yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And, and talking about the money, you obviously, you know, found success, but you found success in a big way with some great investors. You know, first you had a $4 million seed round led by General Catalyst, one of the greatest funds out there, as well as an impressive Series A with S, uh, S2G Ventures for $12 million. You know, how did you land such incredible invest investors and what kind of value have they been able to bring to you as a founder? So S2, so I'll start with GC. That round got put together because an advisor that I had in Toronto had a friend who was an executive of a residence and an LP, a general catalyst. So when we started to go through the target cohort, we had a couple of different investment offers when Loblaws was at the same time Loblaws was picking up. So this advisor is like, why don't we go to Boston and meet my friends? So we went to GC's office. A couple people got pulled in, told the story. They ended up flying up to Toronto, seeing the operation of the stores. And they gave us an offer that like was actually a, a lot lower valuation than some of the other offers that we had. 
but the people around the table were so impressive and it was such an impressive fun that I just remember being like, this is going to be so hard to do. And if I get it wrong, I'd rather get it wrong with all of these smart people who have built massive businesses than like own a little bit more of the company, but not actually have help in the same way that we would. So we took the, I mean, it was like $12 million difference on a seed round. It was a massive difference. But you were de-risking the business with better quality partners that would hopefully have a more meaningful outcome. And the other thing too is like, if this is a journey that I'm going to go on, I want to learn from people who have built really big things. So General Catalyst has been like phenomenal in terms of the network, in terms of the way that they look at businesses, in terms of the honesty that they'll share around our metrics, because they're seeing best in class companies scale. And even now, like now that we're at a growth stage, it's just fascinating to share some of the metrics back and hear some of the perspective from them around like, how we should be thinking about the business and how big the business can be. And you don't get that from funds that don't have that kind of track record. And then S2G, the most important part of S2G is the partner that I'm working with. It's a guy named Chuck Templeton. Chuck is the founder of OpenTable and the founding chairman of Grubhub. And so he's independently wealthy and has like, you can do whatever he wants and has chosen to work with S2G and got recruited because S2G is funded by one person and his name is Lucas Walton. He's the biggest individual owner of Walmart in the world. Lucas is in his late thirties and like inherited all this money and has put it to use around all things, environment and sustainability. So they have an earth fund, they have an oceans fund and Chuck, our partner who's on our board, that's where he spends all this time. So it just like naturally happened that uh, him and S2G partnered and the access from him, the experience from him. When we went through diligence actually on that round, because he found an open table and understands the power of like the top amount of locations, probably the most impressive thing that I saw an investor do is he's like, forget all the averages, send me your top 30 locations. I want to model out what this could look like on just your top 30 locations. So he took those and whatever the calculation he did, like what's the likelihood of getting all of the stores to that level? Like who knows? But if you map that out, the business is massive. Whereas if we were in so many stores at the time, if you look at the averages, you could think like, well, why are they here? Why aren't they there? And they invested and the business is almost 3 x Yeah. They looked at the top cohort and said like, if this can be bigger, like 10 times bigger, we've got a really business. Who cares about some of the other, you know, maybe off the, off the beaten path type of uh, customers? What advice would you give to the founders struggling right now to keep their businesses alive and who may have term sheets that may be less dilutive, better valuations like you had versus ones that may not be as attractive, but with better partners? What would you suggest to them? I think the world is a lot different now than it was before COVID. That's not even a a slight on like valuations and stuff. It's just the future is going to be a lot different than what we grew up in and what we experienced the last few years. And I don't think enough people are honest with themselves on if their business can actually be a venture-backed, scalable business. And it's awful to take venture money at any phase rather than just shutting the thing down or trying to find some sort of soft landing. Not enough people think about that, honestly. Like recently, like we've been there several times and that's why we were like, no, we're not doing anything. We're doing the grocery thing. If it works, great. If it doesn't, that's it. In terms of like the term sheets that come in and the predatory nature, I saw somebody the other day say that there's like, that uh, it's on a beta kit article. There's like a dark place in hell for VCs that are like challenging in these times. And I don't agree with that at all. Like I actually think like that's such a cop out. You as a venture capitalist 
need to have a massive return on the capital that people entrust you with because it's their riskiest asset class. And if you don't have that, then you don't have another fund and you don't have a VC fund. Like founders and entrepreneurs who take in money, if you don't realize it at the beginning, like you better learn it fast because your job as like a VC and being mad is not to be Josh's friend. That is a part of a partnership, but it's also to get a return on your capital. And this is like the new epicenter of, I don't want to say greed, but VCs have to make a huge markup on their funds to keep being VCs. To take the lens of like things that are predatory, I mean, like we've we've been through that. We've seen it. We fortunately survived. We didn't have to take, like we took all, for the most part, clean deals through our whole life, made a bunch of mistakes. But I just think like, be really honest with yourself on your business. That's first and foremost. Skeleton out the team if you have to and actually see if you have a business there because the longer that you hold on to something that might not work, even if you convince somebody to give you money, like maybe it turns the corner and works, but it also you could just be fooling yourself and delaying time that you could be either working or doing something else, building something else that could be great. So I just don't think people are are honest enough with themselves. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, like we are obviously or at least we try to be more founder friendly. I think the way I think about it, like there are a lot of predatory investors out there. I don't agree with a lot of the things that they're doing because what I think they're trying to gain in the short term from having some of those clauses put in can end up really hurting them in the long term because of one, founders like you just getting fed up and saying, I'm walking. And then there's nothing left to fight for. That's a big thing I don't think a lot of people talk about. But then again, flipping it back to the other side, why do some VCs have to put in these things? Well, one- it really is their risk capital. The founders don't have any capital technically involved. And the biggest risk for the founder is that they're out of a job, but you know they got a chance to take a salary and build something. Uh, but really the fiduciary responsibility for the GP is that they need to do something that's financially responsible for their LPs and they have to consider all those, you know, those risk factors. So they have to wear both hats. Uh, we take the lens because we're so early that the higher risk of failure is going to be substantial for you know the qu- quantity. But as long as we've given it a fair shot and the founders are not a- angry at us specifically for their failure, but for the overall product solution fit failure, that's okay for us. And we know we'll back that founder again. But yes, at the later stage, there's a lot more capital on the line and there's a lot more um, obstacles to overcome. If you look at like Toronto and some of the companies that have really scaled in the last few years. So I'm in my like early to mid thirties, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. And like, we'll continue to connect with other founders and for investors that are predatory and shitty times, I know it. Like I know who they are. I know what they're saying. And I'm not recommending people to go to investor X. I'll actually just tell the story. Cause like, I don't know if somebody does something like that's what you did. And if you look at like Toronto and the ecosystem, there's like 15 founders, maybe 20 that have built really meaningful businesses and we all know each other. So like the, the trickle down effect of like trying to take advantage of somebody who's, whether they're in that group or not in that group, like that word spreads fast. And as an venture capitalist, like that's a, in addition to like having a zero return on your fund that I think the risk is actually higher being known as somebody who's bad in bad times. Couldn't agree more. A hundred percent. It's a small circle and we play for the long game, as I mentioned. So we're very cautious when we pass on founders or even when we have a, a company not work out, we do everything we can to help them try to get, you know, a soft landing or onto their next journey. So I agreed with you completely. 
we can spend a lot of time talking about that. But, you know, I want to talk about something you recently did, which was you brought on a new president and COO who has spent his entire career in the grocery industry. I want to understand what that process was like to bring in someone like that. And how has he been able to level you up and support you? Nick, who is our new president and COO, was actually, he was 10 plus years at Walmart, one of the youngest to get to the level that he got at Walmart Global based in the US. And then he was uh, at Jewel Osco, which is another grocery chain. And then he spent six years as the president of the giant company, which happened to be one of which happened to be one of our grocery partners. So I've known Nick for almost three years now, building a relationship. And it goes back to like what you were talking about, like getting on a plane and going to see people. And it was just, it's been such an incredible relationship because I've seen some of the things that he's gone through as an executive. I've seen what his life is like running a grocery chain in the middle of COVID. I know about his family. I know his kids. Uh, haven't met them, but like have basically tracked their story. As we've continued to scale, the business is way different today than it was when it was like an idea when you and I met years ago. Now we're like a real thriving professional organization that's best in class at what we're doing. And that requires a completely different skill set to manage different areas of the business. And in saying that, like I had a conversation with my board about like things that I'm great at and things that I can get better at. But the challenge that we have is timing. Like this is a land grab. We have to get as many grocers in the States as we can. And then we have to go to as many countries as we can, as fast as we can. And there's going to be nobody better in the world at selling what we're doing to these executives than I am. And I'm not an incredible people manager. I'm like good, but not great. I'm not good at elevating people and developing people past the point of where we are now and probably even earlier because I never got promoted in my career. Like I've never even gone through that. I jumped jobs a couple of times and I started a company. So even like giving performance reviews, like that was a new thing for me as our company kept getting bigger. So bringing in Nick, who is the complete opposite of me in that regard, incredibly metrics driven, obviously like the ethics and all of those boxes check or else like that wouldn't even be a consideration, but he's performance driven. He's metrics driven. He's very communicative with the team, uh, lets people know exactly how to get better at different things. All of the things that you'd see from an incredible executive who's been doing what he's done and had the accolades. And also he was a grocery executive. So specific to our space, we're trying to get into more grocery chains. He's in his mid forties. He knows all of these other executives. He's worked alongside them at Walmart or other companies. And that trust factor has been completely game-changing for us because it's no longer like startup founder trying to sell us a software. It's actually like, here's one of my colleagues that I've looked up to and from afar. Why is he joining this company? And what did he see when he was in his last company that he's able to share? And so the conversation with some of these massive retailers is not one that I can have just myself. And then continuing to level up the company, it's just, it's just a different framing from somebody who's done it at some of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah, it's a brilliant move. And we've been doing it with some of our like series A plus series B companies, uh, because exactly what you said is a lot of these founders have never been leaders of a, a corporate job, have never had to manage more than 25, 50 people and recognizing your own deficiencies and bringing somebody in to level up the whole company is recognizing what your, you know, what your faults are and having somebody augment that is an important thing to do as a leader. Would you have done it earlier? Do you think if you, if you had the opportunity? I actually probably would have done it later if he wasn't available. I don't think you can force somebody in. I don't think like you can do an exec search and go through the whole rigmarole, but interviewing is so tough to get somebody who's like great at a senior role because everybody, you can interview great and just be awful at the actual doing the work. 
And there's a huge risk factor from like for the executive going from an executive of something to joining a growth stage company. Those are, it's a different world for Nick too. And there's things that like I've had to work with him on where he's like, I'm not good here. I don't know what to do here. Like that are just way different, but I've known him for years. There's a trust there. He understands the mission. He cares about it. And he's very highly regarded in the space and he was available. And if that wasn't the case, this could have taken us three years. So I would actually suggest like, uh, the opposite. Like if you don't, all the planets aligned for us, that made it the case. But if not, like I would have not made a, I wouldn't have not been in a rush to make this move. I would have kept working on myself. Right. It, it sounds like one, uh, getting on that plane and building relationships early on is really important and finding those mentors is really important, but not forcing this type of hire is, uh, is something you also recommend, which is great. You know, before we jump into our fast favorite section, you know, tell us what the plans are for the future with flash food. Where do you see it going and thriving over the next you know couple of years? The biggest feature that we just launched is I accepted snap and EBT as a payment method. So snap and EBT is basically g- digital food stamps in America. So Americans can now use the digitized food stamps that they receive to buy products on flash food, which is like the government provides the number just changed, but previously it was $90 billion a year for folks. And we've just basically doubled the benefit to them because the average discount on flash food is 50% off. So that's just rolling out with one of our partners and we'll scale to others. That's just incredibly exciting. And in the future, this is a problem. Food waste at the grocery chain is a problem in every developing and developed country in the world. And there's not many opportunities that you have to scale a business that can be as big as we intend to be. So the plan is win America and then like, let's pick where we're going next, what market makes the most sense. And that's really exciting too, because we're still a Canadian based company, still like domiciled in Canada, doing this all from here. There's not many, there's not many consumer mobile apps that have scaled to the size that we have now. And and it's something that gets overlooked, I think, when you think about Flash Food, because you're like, all right, like grocery tech company, like, yeah, I get it, whatever. But it's actually like, well, we have millions of people on a monthly basis now interacting with our mobile app that they've downloaded on their phone that's staying on their phone that they keep coming back to like that is very difficult to pull off and how big can we make this like that's how we're thinking and how many people can we impact is how we're thinking and that's really exciting that's incredible coming from like a broken leg and lying in the bed crying (laughs) come a long way i gotta ask is your sister proud of you yet no, she thinks I'm an idiot. She's like, how are you pulling this off? You don't know anything about food. Don't know anything about tech. She's like, I just called you to cry about all the food I threw it. I didn't think you'd actually run with it. Yeah, she's literally shocked. She's just shocked that this is happening. But uh, That's incredible. Well, we always like to jump into our fast favorites at the end before we wrap things up. So first off, your favorite podcast. Favorite podcast would be 20 Minute VC with Harry Steppings. Always a goodie. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. The Peak. The Peak is amazing. I, I brag about them all the time. Subscribe to The Peak. That That is awesome. Fantastic. Favorite tech gadget? Definitely my Apple Watch. Nice. And favorite new trend? This one was a tough one, but I think the electric car adoption. And it doesn't seem so obvious, but basically Tesla really pushed things forward about a decade ago. And now you're just seeing every other company trying to catch up as fast as they can. And I think it's like you're in different countries, you're seeing basically almost all of the cars be sold that are electric, which I think is just so important. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I My next car, I want to be electric, but everyone keeps telling me the options are limited. And then I do like a few Google searches of like SUV electric, blah, blah, blah. And like six options come up right away. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know like they had electric cars uh, with that brand. It's incredible. Uh, so I totally agree on that one. Next is your favorite book. 
Good to Great is awesome. Shoe Dog is awesome. And the best like startup book that I read was The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Of course, always a classic here on the tank. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. So my sis, my sister-in-law, Barbara, passed away a couple years ago. She was a doctor. She was amazing. She had cancer and it was awful. But just the way that she carried herself through the whole process was like, she was just the best person ever. And the, the quote that I've locked in is hold on to happiness. It was one of the songs that she would play that like was on the playlist. And I've like tattooed it on my forearm and just kind of like whatever happens to you, like outside of some chemical imbalances, like you can decide and make the choice on being happy in the way that you look at things. So shout out to Barbara, who's looking down on all this happening and, and uh, hold on to happiness is definitely the mantra that I keep. Ah, that's a fantastic way to live. Thank you so much for joining us in the tank today with Josh Dominguez, founder and CEO of flash food. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at MattyBCohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.